Amen. All right. While they receive the offering, y'all, why don't you, why don't you go ahead go ahead and open up your Bibles? You're going to need a Bible this morning. And so if you didn't bring a Bible, you forgot your Bible at home, or maybe, maybe you don't own a Bible, that's okay. There's a Bible underneath the seat you're sitting in. It's a white Bible. You just reach down there. I promise you there's, there's one there. Uh, if there's not one there, there's one next to you. I promise it's right there around you. Grab one of those white Bibles out. Uh, pull that out. We're going to be um, in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, chapter 18 primarily, and we're going to be in James chapter 5. So 1 Kings 18 and James chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, um, in that white Bible, I can tell you uh, 1 Kings is on page 170. I hope that helps you. 1 Kings 18 is on page 170. And James chapter 5 is on page uh, 588. 588. So 1 Kings 18 on page 170. And James 5 on page 588, 170 and 588. You've got to put, got to put a thumb in James. We're going to get there at the end. We're going to spend the first part uh, in 1 Kings. Um, we started a new series last Sunday in the park. Were you guys at the park last week? That was crazy. That was awesome. I love that. We started a new series last Sunday at the park, and uh, a new series called True Flourishing Is. Right? We here at Flourishing Grace Church, we, we long to, be, to see people led into flourishing relationships with Jesus. We long to be those who lead people into flourishing relationships with Jesus, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. We want to lead them into flourishing relationships with Jesus. We talk about this all the time. What does that mean? What is true flourishing? And so what we've done is we've, uh, through, through kind of just prayer and study, we've developed these seven kind of core convictions, these seven core values and what we'd say is, man, if these things are true of ourselves, if these things are true of our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, if these things are becoming true of them, they're being led into flourishing. If these things are true, they have a flourishing relationship with Jesus. If these things are true of me, I have a flourishing relationship with Jesus. And last week, we talked about this idea of putting Jesus first at all costs. The first and most important primary thing is that Jesus is preeminent in our life. He is, he is the first thing in our life. He is our greatest love, our greatest affection, our greatest desire. Jesus is that. And what we did is we looked at, the, at, a, at a character, the Apostle Paul, and looked at how that was true of him and why that was true of him. And so each week we're going to walk through each of these seven, um, seven values or seven convictions, and then we're going to find a character in the Bible that exemplifies that characteristic or that value. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a prophet. His name was Elijah. And Elijah appears on the scene in the book of 1 Kings. Elijah was a prophet at a time in history where it was not necessarily a good thing to be a prophet. Um, it, it was a rough season in the nation of Israel. Um, the nation of Israel at this point in time was a kingdom divided, right? There's a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, and there's a northern kingdom, the kingdom called Israel. Um, and so there's two different kings running, each one running one of those kingdoms. In the northern kingdom of Israel, there's a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab is a lousy, terrible king. Ahab reigns in Israel uh, some uh, he, he reigns in Israel some 60, 70-ish years after Solomon. Solomon, King Solomon was the son of King David, um, and David was the second king of Israel. And so there's many kings that kind of, between Solomon and Ahab, there's many kings in 60 to 70 years. Um, king Ahab shows up on the scene. He, he's leading this, the nation of Israel. King Ahab begins to bring in these, these false gods, primarily the god of Baal. And the way that he does this is, by marrying uh, women who are from other countries, other countries, other nations that worship other gods outside of Israel. And so he marries uh, a woman in particular. We'll talk about her in a minute. Um, they bring in these gods of Baal, and they begin to press out 
The God Yahweh, the one true singular God, the God of, um, of Israel, the God who has led Israel uh, out of captivity, the one who's led them into the promised land, the one who has provided for them again and again and again, begins to be diminished while King Ahab begins to build up this new faith in these gods of Baal, these pagan foreign uh, false gods. Um, King Ahab uh, is kind of his life is summarized at the end of 1 Kings 16. It's not going to be up on the screen. I'll just read it for you real quick. Uh, this is how it talks about King Ahab. King Ahab, 1 Kings 16, 32, says this. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more, here it is, ready? Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the, of the kings of Israel who were before him, right? That's Ahab, lousy king, right? King Ahab literally does more to provoke God to anger, frustration, um, rage than any of the other kings before him in Israel combined. He, he's a terrible, terrible king. He married a woman famously named Jezebel. Jezebel was a Sidonian. She's from another land, another nation. Jezebel was the one who brought in um, this worship of Baal. And King Ahab builds this house um, to Baal and builds these, uh, uh, these idols to Baal. And so Jezebel, not only does she bring that in, but Jezebel brings in these prophets of Baal and begins to kill, hunt down and kill the prophets of God, the prophets of Yahweh. And so they go into hiding. They live in caves in the mountains and they, they, they hide from Jezebel because she's hunting them down and killing them. Then enters all of a sudden in, in 1 Kings chapter 17 enters Elijah. Elijah um, is this hero of the Jewish faith. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, Elijah is spoken about more in the New Testament than any other prophet from the Old Testament. Elijah is a prophet. He shows up. Um, he shows up to King Ahab. We don't know much about his childhood or how he grew up. He just kind of shows up out of the blue. In First Kings seventeen, first verse, he shows up to King Ahab. He shows up and he says, "Hey, here's the deal." I have been praying and praying and praying that God would change and shift the hearts of the people of Israel back to himself. And here's how this is going to go down, King Ahab. Because of your unfaithfulness, because of your wickedness, because you're a lousy king, it will not rain in the nation of Israel until I say. It will not rain again. Not one drop of moisture will hit the ground until I Say, and for three years and six months, there is no rain. Elijah shows up to King Ahab. He says, it will not rain, and then he disappears. He leaves. God leads him to a brook. He says, you, I want you to go to this brook. I want you to stay by this brook. I'm going to feed you there. And every morning, ravens bring Elijah food. And every evening, ravens bring Elijah food. And so God provides for him. There's, there's water there, and there's food there. And then eventually, he's there. We don't know exactly how long he's there, but he's there for a long time, long enough for this drought to take effect because the brook dries up. The brook dries up. There's no more water. So God says, here, I want you to go to this town. There's a widow in this town, and she's going to care for you there. And he goes to this town. He finds a widow. He says, hey, do you have any food? And she goes, oh, you caught me at a bad time. I've got this little handful of flour, and I've got this jug that's pretty much empty of oil. I'm about to go make one last little piece of bread, and me and my boy, we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. That's all we got left. Right? This widow has been rationing this food for who knows how long. And this is, this is the last 
little morsel. This is the last little piece. You're going to put together this little patty of bread, and, and that's going to be their last meal. And Elijah's response is, can I have a little bit of that? Can, can, can I try that? Can, can I try that out? Come on, man. It's their last meal. Like, birds are bringing you food. You're fine. Like, he's like, can I, how about you share a little bit of that last meal with me? Like, that's, that's inappropriate. But she does. She gives him some. She gives him some of this food, and, and, and he, he eats it, and he says, here's the deal. You're going to take care of me. You're going to feed me, and here's what God's going to do. I, I, I've prayed, and God is going to make that flour jar never run out. He's going to make that jug of oil never run out. And so the next day, she goes and she gets more flour and more oil out of her, out of her jar and out of her jug. And the next day, there's more. And the next day, there's more. And the next day, there's more. And, and the next day, there's more. And weeks and months and years in abundance of flour and oil. And she makes bread, and she feeds Elijah, and she feeds her boy, and she feeds herself, and they, they eat well in this time of famine and drought. And one day, her boy dies. One day, her, her boy gets sick and dies, and she goes to Elijah and says, what, why? I, I don't understand. God called me to be the one that takes care of his prophet. God told me to, I've done everything that he's asked me to do. I, I, I've served you. I've cared for you. I've done what? Why, why would he take my boy? I don't care about flour. I don't care about, about oil. I don't want those things. I want my boy. And so Elijah then goes again and he prays over this boy. He spreads out over the top of him and he prays. Nothing happens. And again he goes and he prays again. Nothing happens. The third time, he spreads out over this boy, and he prays, God, restore his life. And the boy breathes again. He, he is raised from the grave by the prayers of Elijah. Elijah is one who lives this prayer-saturated life. We see it again and again and again. And what's, what's crazy about this piece of the story, right, this, this piece of the widow, it's a, it's a side story. Right? Elijah's up here. He's, he's wrestling. He's dealing with, with the king of the nation of Israel. Who cares about this widow and her kid? Why is that even in here? Why is that a part of the story? Right? He's got bigger fish to fry. You see, what I, I think it does is it paints this beautiful picture of true flourishing. You see, you can't be passionate about true flourishing and only hang out up here with the people who have great means or great influence. The people who care about great flourishing do both. It's a micro, it's a micro picture, it's a vignette, if you will, of Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene and he, he literally disrupts the fabric of the, of the empire of Rome. He, he disrupts, he disrupts the, on the highest level the, the entire nation of Israel and the Jewish culture of the day. Yet at the same time, he's hanging out with paupers and drunks and prostitutes and lepers and blind people. People who are truly passionate about flourishing are not only engaged up here on the, on the, on the most influential and the, and, the most, and the deepest levels of society and the biggest levels of society, they're also engaged down here. Not only must we engage the fabric of our culture and what's broken all around us, we must engage the, the very heart and the lives of the least of these. Our neighbors, our friends, and coworkers, the people who live on the streets, the people who are in the hospitals, we must engage in their lives and in their hearts as much as we engage up here, trying to change an entire culture, trying to, trying to create new culture. It must be done up here and down here. And Elijah knows this. Elijah understands this. And so he doesn't stay with the widow. He has to go back. He has to go back to King Ahab. He goes back to King Ahab. He says, hey, King Ahab, how's it going? 
King Ahab, has been, it's been three years and six months with no rain. How do you think it's going? Why did you do this to me? King Ahab says, and Elijah says, well, you did this to yourself. You're the one who brought the drought. You're the one who brought the famine. You and your faithlessness, you and your rebellion against God, you created this mess. But I have a solution, Elijah says. Here's what you're going to do. I want you to gather all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asher, this other foreign god. I want you to gather them, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asher. I want you to gather them at Mount Carmel. We're going to have a little, have a little contest and see whose god is the real god. Yeah, so it's okay. And here's how it goes down. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Kings 18, verse 20 is where we're going to pick it up. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I... Even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Here's what we're going to do. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to the wood. And I'll prepare the other bull, and I'll lay it on the wool, on, on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of my God, the Lord Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Meaning, sounds good to me, right? Here's, here's what he says. Get all your prophets together, right? All 450 of them, right? Let's give them a bull. Let's give them some wood. They can build an altar, right? And then you give me a bull. You give me some wood. I'm going to build an altar, right? And then they, they pray to their God. And if their God lights a fire, awesome. I'll pray to my God. If my God lights a fire, awesome. We'll see whose God's the real God. People of Israel say, that sounds entertaining. Let's do that, right? Who doesn't want to see that go down? I know that sounds good to me, right? And so they say, let's do this thing. And so the prophets of Baal build this altar, they put wood, they stack the wood up on it, all, all nice and clean. They put the bull up on top of the wood, and then they begin to pray. Early in the morning, they begin to pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray. Minutes turn into hours. For hours and hours and hours, they pray. And finally, at noon, Elijah's got some words, and I, I love this. I have to read this for you. This is the best part of the story, okay? Elijah begins to poke a little bit of fun at the prophets of Baal. Here's what he says. At noon, Elijah, this is verse 27, at noon, Elijah uh, mocked them saying, cry aloud. Maybe you got to speak up a little bit, right? For he is a God, right? He is a God, so cry, cry a little bit louder. E either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened, right? Elijah says, why don't you speak up a little bit? After all, he is a God. He probably can't hear you, Right? Uh, that doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, maybe, maybe he's, you know, doing something else. Maybe he's a little busy. Or maybe, maybe he's going to the bathroom, right? Why don't you just speak up a little bit, get his attention, and then, and then I'm sure the fire will, will light up. I love that, right? Elijah, this, this great man of God, he's still got a little humor in him, okay? Um, and so nothing happens. They begin chanting and dancing around this fire. They begin cutting themselves and just going crazy over this thing. Nothing happens. Elijah says, how about, how about I give it a try? 
And so Elijah begins to build his altar. He takes 12 big stones, each stone representing one of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. He stacks those stones and he builds um, this, this wood on top of it, this, this wood structure on top of it, and then he lays the parts of the bull on top of the wood structure. And he says, no, oh, that's, that's pretty good. But there's something missing. He sees these 12 large vessels of water. He says, hey, bring those over here, these massive vessels of water, and the, the people of Israel carry them over. He says, pour that on top of this structure. They pour it on top of the bull, and it seeps down over the bull and into the wood and under the stones, and they dig the trench around this structure, and the trench begins to catch the water. He says, good, why don't you go fill those up again? They go fill them up again, they dump them on top again, and again it saturates the bull, it saturates the wood, it saturates the stones, and it begins to, to trickle off and run down into the trench. We're getting someplace, why don't you go fill those up again? These four massive vessels, they bring them and they dump them on again, and this time it's just gushing off. Everything is saturated, and it runs down. It fills the entire trench all the way around. Everything's soaked in wood. And ever try, ever try to light some wet wood? It doesn't go well. Elijah says, that's perfect. And then he begins to pray. And this is, this is how he prays. This is in uh, verse 36, 1 Kings 18, verse 36. And at that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Yahweh, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, here's why, that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, and this is crazy, and the stones in the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, Yahweh, is God. The Lord is God. Elijah prays, and this fire <laughs> destroys the bull, destroys the wood. It even destroys the stones and, the, and soaks up all of the wet dust, destroys the dust underneath. It soaks up all the water from the trench in an instant. It's gone. It's over. And the people in the nation of Israel say, yeah, that's the one. Uh, decision made. And they fall on their faces and they begin to worship Yahweh. They begin to worship the one true God. But this isn't where the story ends. It gets even crazier. The people of Israel seize all of the prophets of Baal, 450 men. They drag them down to the river and Elijah slaughters them all. And Elijah goes back up on top of the mountain. He says, it's kind of time to pray for some rain. He begins to pray for rain. He says, is it raining yet? They say, no. So he goes and he prays again. Is it raining yet? No. So he goes and he prays again, he prays and he prays. Is it raining yet? No. Seven times he prays for rain, and on the seventh time, this cloud like a hand comes up out of the sea, comes over the nation of Israel, and just dumps buckets of water all over the people. If the story ended there, you'd be like, dude, Elijah, that guy, he's like a super, he's like Superman of the Bible. Hey, he's, like, he's like this crazy pyromaniac guy. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's not even half the story, right? 
Elijah kills like all these other guys with, with raining fire from heaven. He doesn't even die. God comes in these chariots of fire and scoops him. Like the story goes on. It's crazy. Right? You're like, Elijah, that's amazing. This, this guy's a stud. There's nobody like him. I could never be like that. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. King Ahab, after it begins raining buckets, King Ahab goes back to tell his wife Jezebel. He goes to Jezebel and he says, you won't believe what happened? There's like a bull and fire and flames and Elijah. God came down. It's amazing. He killed all the prophets of Baal and it rained. That's unbelievable. She says, he killed who? He killed my prophets? Let it be known that by the end of the day tomorrow, Elijah will be like one of those prophets. I'm coming for him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to end him. It's over for him. Elijah receives this word, and Elijah goes into hiding. He runs and hides. This, this is a fascinating, this is the craziest thing. You got this, this man has lived a prayer-saturated life, and when he, when he prays, crazy things happen. He prays for it not to rain, and it doesn't rain for three years and six months. He prays that, 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 this, that this woman would receive flour and oil, that she would have these provisions, and she receive these magical vessels that never run out. He prays that this boy would be given new life, and he breathes again. He prays that fire would come from heaven and consume this altar, and it does. He prays that, that it would rain again after three years and six months, and it rains. The people of Israel turn their hearts back to God. This is the thing that he's been asking. This is the thing that he's been longing for. And finally, it's here. And then this, this, is, this is the moment that they need a spiritual leader. They need someone who's going to stand up and step up and say, come on, let's go. Let's worship Yahweh. Let's worship the King of kings. Let's worship the Lord of lords. And he hears this rumor that someone's out to get him, and he runs and hides. Hides in a cave. He goes from this moment of just crazy, insane boldness and faith in God to a moment of faithlessness, a moment of extreme doubt and fear of man. And James, in the book of James, chapter 5, James begins talking about prayer, and he's, he's encouraging the church to live prayer-saturated life. That, that is the value that we're talking about this morning, right? So last week was putting Jesus first at all costs. This morning is living a prayer-saturated life. If we're going to see true flourishing in our lives, our lives must be saturated in prayer. If we're going to see true flourishing in the lives of our neighbors, we must live prayer-saturated lives because we're not the ones that, that produce it. We're not the ones that create it. And James begins to talk about this idea of living a prayer-saturated life and he draws on this idea of Elijah, and he points out this particular moment, this, this running and hiding idea. Here, here's what James says in James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Right? So, so is, any, is anyone sick? Is anyone suffering? Is anyone not feeling good? Pray. If it is anyone joyful, is anyone cheerful? Pray. Right? So, so no matter what you're doing, no matter how you're feeling, pray, James says. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call upon the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if anyone has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's as it is working. Now, here we go. Elijah 
was a man with a nature like ours. What does that mean? What's he saying? What's James saying? What he's saying to his church and what I'm saying to you, what this, what, what, what it's, what this word is saying to you is that, that Elijah is just like you. He's just like me. He's human. He's not Superman. He's not the Superman in the Bible. He's not the Superman in the Old Testament. He's just like you. He's just like me. He cut him. He bleeds. He's human. He's, he's, no, he's no more special than you. He's just like you. He has a nature just like, you, just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you is wandering from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from the death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here's what just happened, right? So some people take these two passages and they, they split them into two different ideas. They say, here's James talking about prayer, and then James goes into this thing on evangelism. That's not what happened. James is still talking about Elijah. Elijah's cry, Elijah's longing was that, that the people of Israel would be led back to God, that their, that their relationship with God would be restored. That's his prayer, that's his longing, that they would experience this human flourishing. And so what James is saying is, man, if anyone does that, if anyone leads someone back to God, man, it's going to cover a multitude of sins. How do we do that? Prayer is what James is saying. Prayer. What James is communicating, what he's showing us is that, is that if we're going to be a people who are serious about bringing about flourishing relationships with Jesus, we're not the ones who are going to do it. Jesus is. Our role in that is to pray. To be people who live prayer-saturated lives, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members. And you might say, Josh, okay, you're right. Elijah, got it. Human. You cut him, he bleeds. He's got breath in his lungs, blood in his eyes. I, I get it. He's human. But, but look at him, man. I mean, this guy, he is a stud. He's way But Josh, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Like, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not even sure what I believe. I, I, listen, here, here, here's what I'm saying. Yes, Elijah was awesome, righteous man, prophet of God. As we talked about earlier when we received communion, when God looks upon you and, and says, man, where's your righteousness? He doesn't see your righteousness. He sees his own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, we are clothed in his righteousness. And so when we pray, pray and God said, looks and says, oh, who's praying? What he sees is his own, the righteousness of Christ, far greater than the righteousness of Elijah. Far greater. Far, far greater. I would much rather have the righteousness of Christ than the righteousness of Elijah. And so when I pray for my boys to grow up and have a flourishing relationship with Jesus, when God hears my prayers, he hears the prayers of a, of a righteous man, a perfectly righteous man, a man as righteous as Jesus. Not because I've done something special, not because I've done something amazing, but because Jesus stepped in for me. Not because I've earned some sort of favor or done some sort of magical trick. No, no, no. Jesus gave his righteousness for me on the cross. And so, so if you can lift your voice and pray for your neighbor, you're as good as, if not better, than Elijah. If you can get on your knees and pray for your spouse or your family member or your coworker, you are just as good, probably better than Elijah. And if we're going to see any type of flourishing, if we're going to see any type of flourishing relationship with Jesus, it's going to be because the people of Flourishing Grace Church 
live prayer-saturated lives. I, I promise you, it will not come unless the people flourish in Grace Church. Say, I, I have no role, I have no part, I can't create flourishing, real, true, biblical, Jesus, gospel-centered flourishing. I can't do that, but I can pray. And so my challenge to you this morning, church, is start someplace. Maybe you never really pray. Maybe it's just not your thing. You're not, this is all new to you. Start someplace. Maybe you set an alarm on your phone. Maybe it's on your commute to work and it just goes off while you're, while you're driving and you just use that time, that 15, 20 minutes, just pray for your coworkers. Pray for a family member. What, what if we just picked one family member that needs Jesus, one coworker that needs Jesus, one neighbor that needs Jesus? I, I know you got that in your life. I know you have one family member that needs Jesus. I know that you have one coworker, one friend that needs Jesus, and I know you have one neighbor that needs Jesus. You live in Bountiful, Utah. I promise. It's there. What if you just identified those three names, those three people, and you said, man, I just want to begin to pray for them. And you prayed the same prayer of Elijah. This idea of a drought comes from the book of Deuteronomy. This is what God calls us to do when, someone's, when the nation of Israel turns away from them. He said, let's pray that it's in drought. And this is, this is dangerous, this is crazy, but what if we begin to say, say, Jesus, would you send a drought into the life of my friend that does not know you until they know of the living water of Christ, so they drink deep of the living water of Christ, and they enter into a flourishing relationship with you? Will you send a drought into the life of my family member until they drink deep of the living water that is Jesus and enter into a flourishing relationship with him? Will you send, will you send a drought into the life of my friend my coworker, my neighbor, would you, would you take whatever they've put their hope into and remove it? Create a drought in their life until they drink deep of the living water of Christ, and then might they, might they find a flourishing relationship with you? Might they know that there is a God who loves them more than they will ever begin to imagine? And might their hearts be turned to you? You want to see this community transformed it's going to happen up here. We've got, we got to pray for it up here, but we have to engage down here. We have, to, we have to engage with the kings. We have to engage with the widows. And let us pray that, that they might experience this massive drought in their lives until they drink deep of the living water of Christ. I would much rather my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers experience three and a half years of suffering and find Jesus for eternity than to put their hope into something for the next three and a half years and live in eternity without him. That this is the call of the church, to live prayer-saturated lives, to cling to Christ no matter what. Let me pray for us. Jesus, the, the truth is, the reality is that Elijah had to live through the drought. He had, he had to be one who also suffered. He ate food from birds, and when day is when he was thirsty. Would we be a people who are willing to enter into the drought? Would we be a people who say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to turn the hearts of the men and women of Davis County to Christ, bring it. Bring it. Let, let us be a people who suffer the drought until our neighbors, our friends, and coworkers drink deep of the living water of Jesus. Let us live prayer-saturated lives. Let Help us identify the people in our lives, even, even now. Church, even now, who are those people? One friend, one neighbor, one co-worker, 
that needs Jesus. Right now, let's lift up that prayer. Jesus, would you bring drought to their lives? Until they drink deep the unending living water of Christ. Might they find flourishing in you? Might they find a flourishing relationship with Jesus? Might all their joy be found there? Might all their comfort be found there? Might all their contentment be found there? Might all their hope be found there in you? In you alone? I pray these things with great expectancy. I pray them in the power of your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.